Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about whether we take fathers for granted or whether we've actually ridden them off as a loss. for Mother's Day, I've dug into my fine-tuning notes and found the block of music that I put together for a tribute to fathers. This one actually is double-length the one for mothers. I'm not sure whether that says anything about how I really feel or not. Um, So, as I read through this list of songs, Happy Father's Day to everyone who celebrates it according to the U.S. and U.K. calendars. The song that I played in the introduction is Dear Mr. President and the track Hey Daddy, Have You Ever Been Arrested? If I was putting together a playlist on a radio station as a tribute to fathers, this is the way I would start it. It's an an interesting song, and one that I'm not sure that is easy to track down. I'm tempted to recommend it, but I'm not sure I see the point, because if the song itself, or the band Dear Mr. President, or their eponymously titled album Dear Mr. President, are impossible to find, then it doesn't really make much difference whether I play a snippet of it or not, and whether I recommend it based off that snippet or not. But uh, the song really, for reasons that are anything obvious in, in the clip I played, the song is very funny. Dear Mr. President falls kind of in the glam new wave area, where uh, not glam rock, certainly not metal, although this particular song kind of gives you the impression that they were. But they also veer more toward a dead or, dead or alive kind of a sound. So somewhere in that uh, new wave kind of uh, post-punk glam pop rock sort of a sound. Uh, was Dear Mr. President, and their song, Hey Daddy, Have You Ever Been Arrested? From looking at my playlist, it sounds like I started off somewhat sarcastic, somewhat negative and ironic, and I get more um, personal and real as it goes. So the next one would have been Reba McIntyre, The Greatest Man I Never Knew. Now, from the title, The Greatest Man I Never Knew, I think you get a sense of the irony in the song, and this is perhaps from Reba McIntyre's very best album, uh, For My Broken Heart. Was Not Was, Hello Dad... I'm in jail, Um, which the song title is essentially the lyrics, so there you go. XTC, Hold Me My Daddy, track from the Oranges and Lemons album, and a song that I have, in some points in my life, excluded from my playlist because it's almost too sentimental, but it really has an XTC charm, so if you're familiar with the band XTC and find them at all charming, Hold Me My Daddy is a good example of Andy Partridge's songwriting style. And finally, for the first half, the obvious one. I'm almost embarrassed to cite it because it is so obvious. Uh, Harry Chapin, Cats in the Cradle. 
Now, there's a serious saccharine quality to that song, but if you look at it in the context of these other more uh, critical, like the more or less part of a tribute to Dad, it definitely fits in because each one of these five songs has kind of a, a dysfunctional quality to the relationship being described. The second five are much more personal and serious, and I think you're going to find that country music dominates them for that reason, that country music tends to have a level of sincerity, especially when it comes to fathers and fathers and sons. Aaron Tippin, You've Got to Stand for Something, um, the uh, lyric you may, if you've heard it once, it'll be rattling through your head pretty quickly, you've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. Words uh, that Aaron Tippin's character in the song describes as being passed down from his father. Paul McCartney, from the uh, latter stage of Paul McCartney's solo career, song called Put It There. Again, a serious father-to-son song where the father is doing the speaking in this case. Randy Travis, He Walked on Water. Actually might be my favorite seriously sentimental father and son song, although ironically, it's really a grandfather-grandson song. Uh, I thought he walked on water. Paul Overstreet, Daddy's Come Around. I'll get to Paul Overstreet later. I won't dwell too much on, on his style or what he's like, but very much a sentimental country music songwriter. And finally, Mark O'Connor and the New Nashville Cats. It's actually a song that's credited to Mark O'Connor and Steve Warner together. It's called Now It Belongs to You. And that particular song was Mark O'Connor passing his fiddle down from father to son and hoping that the son will play it and at least take care of it and respect the legacy of the music that has historically been played on the fiddle. Now, if you don't take fiddle music seriously, or if your only context for it is perhaps the Charlie Daniels band, Mark O'Connor and the New Nashville Cats is really worth seeking out. Not only is Mark O'Connor a world-class violinist and fiddle player, but the country music that has been performed in, in kind of that group name is really outstanding. Uh, now It Belongs to You is one of the slow songs, and again, kind of a legacy to a son. But some of the upbeat songs on the uh, new Nashville Cats album absolutely smoke. So there's a playlist for Father's Day. As I did with Mother's, I want to hit a couple of topics to keep this one pretty straightforward. One of them is uh, talking a little bit about my father, and then a little bit about the question raised in the title of this particular show, where do we stand in our relationship with fathers as a society? There are some corners of our society who feel that we don't really need the father role, that we can get along just fine without it. And there are other corners in our society, sociologist-type corners in our society, who point to the absence of fathers as the source of a lot of our social issues. So we'll get to that at the very end, at least before the different drummer. Okay, an emotional episode for me. Let me acknowledge that right up front. I just got back this very day from watching Toy Story 3 in the cinemas. And one of the things that kind of jumps out at me when I watch any of the Disney or Pixar movies is how often these particular films deal with single-parent situations or no-parent situations, or to flip that on its head, how rare it is to see a film animated by Disney slash Pixar that has both mother and father intact in the relationship you know, behind the central characters. So... Let me let you stop and dwell on that for a minute. Let me put it out there as a challenge. What I'm challenging you to do is to come up with more than three or four of those Disney Pixar movies that have both mother and father in place to support the central character. So that's out there. And I'm going to come back to the Disney topic in just a second. For close to two decades now, though, my father has been gone, as in passed on, and I'd be lying if I didn't say that I miss him more now than I did even 10 years ago. 
I certainly miss him more now than I did 15 years ago. I'm not yet older than he was when he died, so I know that he would have many insights to the things that I'm experiencing now, and I know he would have had many in insights to offer and decisions that I've had to make in those intervening decades without him. Now, this is not a criticism of mothers, and it's not a criticism of fathers-in-law, and it's not even a criticism of older brothers. But, you know, you really can't recover that father-son communication from those other sources. It's just not the same. If you go to the website, http colon slash slash inappropriateconversations.podbean.com, my June 8th post is a piece of the long surrealist novella, Some Assembly Required. And it's a piece of that that I called, How Am I Supposed to Live Without?, now, not trying to call to mind any Michael Bolton song, so forgive the similarity there. But if you'll recall from the uh, third or fourth episode of this particular program, that story was written in 40 days with 40 completely different writing styles. In order to accomplish that, you really need to jump around a little bit. And so in some cases, um, I bring in just conversation between characters. In this case, a very straightforward conversation between a man, a female friend of his, about that man's recently deceased wife and, and, and child and the surviving child. So it's simply a very quick telling of a friend consoling a friend. Part of the reason that I wanted to tell that story and place it into the context of that Linton writing experiment was to demonstrate the kinds of male-female relationships which can exist and be truly loving and not be sexual, or at least not necessarily be sexual. But the other reason that I really felt strongly about having that element of the short story in place was about how an adult child gets along without both parents or without, you know, one of the two parents in place. Here's the line of dialogue. No, after mom died, dad hasn't exactly been a fountain of information. Melanie's parents are on top of things, but I just wouldn't feel comfortable. And what that describes is the reality that when one of the when one of your parents dies, if that's the parent that you relied on for information, then it's very, it's very hard to replace that. And despite maybe having um, in-laws who are also of the right age and have the right kind of experience to offer those sort of insights, it just doesn't feel the same. Now, in this case, partly to create some emotional distance between me as a writer and, and the character that I was writing for, I uh, switched it around. And instead of it being a man who's lost his father, it's a man who lost his mother. But you can see, if you read that section, that blog post, you can see how a father's opinion, uh, especially for somebody my age, might be the most meaningful when it comes to decisions made about insurance and work contracts and selling a house and some of those other sort of things. Because for that generation, it was probably true that the fathers were kind of by gender role assignment more actively involved in those types of decisions. And I do remember, you know, really not long after my father died at all, kind of confronting face-to-face -face being confronted with the fact that I was going to have to make some decisions. I mean, I, we bought a house, but things like selling that house and buying the next house, um, just things about raising two kids, things about having a son. My wife was pregnant when my dad died, and uh, we had a daughter, but we did not yet have a son. So there was going to be some things that I knew that I wasn't going to be able to get along without. Let me repeat a quick thought. I'm going to share it and then tie it back to concepts in film. I'm still not yet older than my dad was when he died. So I know that he would have a lot of insights to offer about things that I'm experiencing now. If that idea calls to mind the film No Country for Old Men, then good for you. You think like I think. 
that's a connection that I made right away. Because not to spoil anything, but near the very end of that film, the Sheriff Bell character makes the observation that uh, he is now older than his dad was when his dad died. And so despite the fact that he remembers his dad as being his senior in every way, he's actually older than him. I haven't reached that point yet. I'm in the opposite spot on the dial where I sort of feel like there's things my dad might have to say that I might need to hear. That was also, to be very honest, to be very frank, a traumatic time for me. Because when my father died, the place that I worked at back then, different company than, than where I'm at now, but the place that I worked at back then was, was not sufficiently supportive of me. It was one of the very few times that that company failed me uh, in, such a, in such a noteworthy way. Typically, they'd been very supportive, and, and I, I have memories of that being a good place to work. However, in this case, there was some discussion because I was working in a retail organization, running a record store. The record store was based inside a, a shopping mall. So your shopping hours are set for you by the mall. If the mall is going to be opening really early the day after Thanksgiving and going to have a lot of business Thanksgiving weekend, your record store needs to be open with all those other stores. So the week before Thanksgiving is crucial time. And everyone would be quick to acknowledge that even from a retail business perspective, nothing could be more tragic than having a major family or life emergency the weekend before Thanksgiving. But you know what? We gathered together for my father's birthday party, knowing that he was ill, knowing that he was per pretty seriously ill. And so we gather everyone together for his birthday, thinking that, hey, this is going to be an opportunity to celebrate this man's life while he's still, you know, not to the point of being hospitalized, not to the point of really showing a lot of symptoms yet. But surprise to us, the day that we were supposed to have his party, he died. So no one was expecting my father to die the weekend before Thanksgiving. I had made arrangements to be in town that Saturday and Sunday, or I would say out of town that Saturday and Sunday, away from work that weekend, in order to have this kind of last moment celebration. And when that turned into staying uh, through the first part of the next week, into Monday and Tuesday, to, to have a funeral, uh, it was more than the people supervising me could handle. Now, my immediate supervisor at the district and area level was very supportive. But his boss at the regional level actually suggested and suggested openly enough that my employees overheard the conversation that I should not have been allowed to go to my father's funeral. Now, let me say that again. There was conversation in my store in front of my employees about whether I should have been permitted to go to my own father's funeral and whether or not it was appropriate that I would even have been by chance in town the day he died. So when I talk about having a lot of emotion wrapped up into the passing of my father, pretty easy to understand why that might be a fairly intense set of feelings for me. So I connect with No Country for Old Men as a movie in ways that go well beyond, actually, the content and quality of the film itself. I freely acknowledge that, but I also do feel it's one of the finest films that I've seen in the last 20 years. Let's get back to Disney for a second, because I hope... If you spend any time, I'm hoping that you've had a little opportunity to go through your favorite Disney and Pixar films and say, wow, once you get past The Incredibles, 101 Dalmatians, and Lady and the Tramp, and even in those latter two films, it's a bit of a jump. Um, Lady and the Tramp is probably the purest example besides The Incredibles. It is awfully hard to find one of those Disney Studios films with intact parents. We just saw Toy Story 3. And I remember coming out of Toy Story 1 being a little fuzzy on whether there was a dad. Because if you, if you remember to Toy Story 1, you, you kind of have mom 
running the show, getting the family and the household ready to move to go to another city. And it was unclear whether there was a dad already relocated waiting. Because that can happen. You know, I, I was up here in the city that I live in now a, a week or two before my family was able to come up and move and join us. So you didn't know whether it was that situation. The plot of Toy Story 3 kind of makes it clear that you're still dealing with a single mom kind of scenario. The Lion King obviously starts off with two parents, but one of them is, is kind of Delta Hamlet blow pretty early on. And Lilo and Stitch, both parents have been wiped out. In films like Aladdin, you do have a father, but there is no mother. Likewise with The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. There are other films where there may be a mother but no father. And then obviously some of the early classic Disney films, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Cinderella, are good examples of films where the situation is beyond dysfunctional and you're, dealing with, uh, you're not dealing with real parents. Not real parents biologically and certainly not real parents sociologically in the, in the way that those households are run. So it's a good thing, I suppose, that Disney and Pixar and other studios are doing a good job trying to portray alternate family life situations. It's where it's okay. It's not a problem. And in many cases, it's not even really a plot element that one of the parents is missing or that both of the parents are gone. Although it's a little bit harder to not have a plot element acknowledging the absence of parents. Lilo and Stitch tries to deal with that to the best of its ability. But on the other hand, it does convey the concept that I introduced in the title, and that's raising the question of whether or not as a society do we have the appropriate context for fathers. You know, some sociologists believe that the absence of fathers is really a big factor in many of the problems that we face as a society today. Now, when I talk about this, I'm referring to what I would call real fathers, whether biologically related or not, real fathers, not just a man in the house. So I'm referring to the role that author Larry Crabb, or perhaps should be more formal and call him Dr. Lawrence Crabb, and others have written about in books like The Silence of Adam. Now, in Crabb's book, he's talking about somebody whose job it is to speak into the lives of their children from a uniquely male perspective. Now, I'm not saying that a woman in the house can't get that done. I'm not saying that in a two-woman household or a single-woman household that that role still can't be played. My question is, are we good enough at being intentional enough about making sure that those words are spoken? That it's the job of one parent, perhaps, to comfort the kid who's fallen off the bike and, and skinned, skinned his or her knee and has vowed never to get on that thing again. That's what we might traditionally think of as a motherly-type role. It is just as valid that somebody else in a parental role has to speak the words to say, hey, you need to get back up on that bicycle and try again. I bet you that there's not a kid in a um, well-functioning household who's played uh, football, whether that be the, the world's variety of football or the American variety of football. Both games present certain physical dangers to the kids who, play, uh, who learn how to play them. And I bet you that there's not a single example where the mom or the person playing the mom role wasn't spending all that time biting nails, worrying about injuries, worrying about health, you know, uh, kind of bristling at the way the coach does his teaching job. Well, at the same time, you got a father in there expressing a lot of pride, expressing a lot of encouragement, perhaps where necessary, echoing the coach's words, making sure that uh, advice and criticism given by teammates and coaches gets through, that a young, a young athlete who's very talented doesn't take his talent for granted. Those are kind of the fatherly type roles. So let me tell you what uh, Dr. Crabb says in his book, The Silence of Adam, because I think that you're going to find that these words have some wisdom that go well beyond whether you accept them in the religious context that they were, that they were written. 
Now, first off, from the silence perspective, let me go back to a piece of scripture I've quoted before, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says this to them, It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. It is the obligation of fathers who believe to speak. Now, from Larry Crabb's perspective, this is a God thing. A godly father speaks three messages to his son. One, it can be done. Two, you are not alone. And three, I believe in you. But let me take this beyond that construct, because although I personally agree with with Larry Crabb, you don't necessarily have to have a Christian worldview. You don't necessarily have to be a theist. Um, None of those religious elements need to be in play to acknowledge what a powerful thing it is for a parent whether genetically male or genetically female, for a parent to play the role of speaking these three words, not to the faces of their children, not to the ears of their children, but into the lives of their children. It can be done. You are not alone, and I believe in you. Powerful, powerful words. Now, when it comes to the concept of silence and whether to stay silent, I am going to invest an episode at some point into this one single quote that I'll provide here, because I think that to me, this is a father-son thing as well. And when I get to it for real, you may find that I view it as more of a heavenly father, human son type thing, but we'll get to that later. Here's the quote. It's far better to say something that should not be said than not to say something that should be said. It is much better as fathers to take the risk of speaking words before they're true. It can be done to say those words even when you doubt it a little bit. To say you are not alone even when you know that your kid in many aspects of their life and many aspects of their experience are going to be alone. I mean, they're not alone because you're with them, but you're not physically going to be with them. And to say, I believe in you. And I would say to fathers, I would say that I believe in you are important words to speak even when you yourself have doubts. Because you can always come back later and apologize for saying something wrong. It's always okay to be mistaken. It's always okay to be short-sighted. But if you know something that needs to be said, and you don't say it when it needs to be heard, how do you come back later and apologize for keeping your mouth shut when you shouldn't have, for being afraid to offer advice when the advice was truly needed? It is far better to say something that should not be said than not to say something that should be said. Now, of course, for fathers, there's a time and a place for everything. But what I consider to be this uniquely male perspective definitely has to be spoken. And it has to be spoken in the context of what I would describe as a fatherly relationship. So, for those of you who celebrate Father's Day, happy Father's Day. Nerd Hurdles, the podcast that encourages you to dork in, nerd on, and geek out. I'm Jacob. And I'm Mandy. We talk about stuff that's too nerdy for people to like. Sometimes we drift off topic. We have to actually be on topic to drift off it. You make a good point. Nerd Hurdles. Our different drummer this week is Jacques Clouseau. This is a selfish entry, but after all, these are my different drummers, so I can do with them as I wish. Why is it a selfish entry? Well, first off, 
I'm not talking about Undersea Explorer Jacques Cousteau. I'm talking about the fictional character, Chief Inspector Jacques Clouseau. Not a person at all, but a creation of Blake Edwards and other scriptwriters for films like The Pink Panther, A Shot in the Dark, and the sequels to the Pink Panther series. Let's describe Inspector Clouseau just a little bit, but I would say first off that if you're not familiar with Inspector Clouseau or the Pink Panther films, that there are probably two or three films out there that are well worth taking in. A Shot in the Dark is not a bad way to start. It was actually the first film written and the first film shot, even though the uh, so-called Pink Panther, the uh, self-titled film in the series, was released first. But better, in my mind, is The Return of the Pink Panther from the mid-70s and The Revenge of the Pink Panther. And you'll find that most people have a very warm place in their heart for the film that came in between those two, The Pink Panther Strikes Again. Chief Inspector Clouseau was a good example of a bumbling and incompetent character, an unreliable main character because of his inabilities. So he's one of those guys who, while completely clueless, while completely clumsy, and while totally inept, manages, despite himself, to get to the right answer to catch a criminal to solve the crime. And I find something kind of comforting in a really weird way about the fact that the main character in these shows, the hero of these shows, is somebody that we can look down on as an audience, that we know more than he does, we're smarter than him. We've got almost the godlike narrator perspective against his um, you know, very foolish main character perspective. But he somehow gets to the right answer anyway. It ties in with one of the science fiction theories that in time travel movies, no matter how you bend the timeline, the timeline will find a way to correct itself. The things that are meant to be will be. And in the way the Inspector Clouseau films play out, the right answer seems to happen. Good results seem to occur, even though the method by which Inspector Clouseau gets there makes almost no sense whatsoever. An obvious question could be raised here. Why cite Inspector Clouseau as a different drummer when he's just a fictional character? When it would be just as easy to cite Peter Sellers and bring in the great body of Peter Sellers' work. There's a couple reasons that I'm not bringing in Peter Sellers. One is that some of the aspects of his personal life are not appealing to me from a different drummer perspective. But even if I deal with him just as a professional, just as an actor, for all the good things that you could bring in from his, the rest of his professional career, there are things there that, that aren't consistent with Inspector Clouseau. They're a little bit off target. And so it doesn't really work. From a perspective of authorship, I could have just thrown up Blake Edwards. Blake Edwards made most of these Pink Panther films and uh, can be cited in my way in my way of thinking as both the author and the director to a large degree. He was co-screenwriter on most of the projects and perhaps has a lot to do with the creation of this character. But that's not sufficient because it would be wrong to suggest that Peter Sellers didn't have almost as much, if not maybe more to do, with the creation of the Inspector Clouseau character. The film is a collaborative art. And in this case, the collaboration between director and screenwriter, you kind of could point to one guy, but I don't think you can undercut what the actor's contribution was to this work. So I'm going to bypass all of those sort of fiction versus nonfiction kind of decisions. And instead of trying to figure out who the author is, I'm just going to point to the character. Because to me, the character is really important. Is he a source of inspiration? No. Is he deserving of admiration or emulation? Uh, no. But you know why I love this character the most? I love this character because my father loved this character. Clouseau made me laugh. And that is significant because I was probably more serious than your average kid when I was growing up. 
aged 10, 11, 12, I had been described by people, and they meant it warmly and affectionately, but I'd been described by people as an old soul, somebody who had a pretty good grip on you know, the big picture and uh, didn't take very much for granted. And I got a lot of that from my father. My father was a very serious man. Uh, and I mean that uh, with a sort of an unintentional throw out to the uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen films. He was a very serious man. I connected with, uh, with the movie No Country for Old Men in relation to my father. I also connected to the movie A Serious Man in relation to my father. And I think if I'd gotten to be the right age and he'd been healthy enough, and I'd had enough time and freedom, you know, so the whole Cats in the Cradle song, the kind of conversations we could have had would have been really marvelously interesting. Because I think my father had a lot of funny stories to share. And I think he never got the opportunity to share them with me in anything other than a very, a very indirect way. I mean, I might have overheard stories at a party or overheard stories at a family reunion. But he never really got the opportunity to share those stories directly with me because I was never the right age at the right time to take that in. So from my perspective, my father was always really very serious. There was one exception to that. In 1975, when The Return of the Pink Panther was originally released in cinemas, I can remember my parents saying, uh, no questions about it, no ifs, ands, or buts, uh, not an option. We were all as a family going to see The Return of the Pink Panther. Now, I had probably been in the car at the drive-in for a shot in the dark's second run theatrically. Now, in the 1960s, Films didn't necessarily make it to TV right away, and there was no such thing as Betamax or VHS per se back then. So it wasn't unusual for a, mo a movie like The Jungle Book to come out, hit the drive-in, and the second feature to be uh, either a B-movie, made intentionally to be the second run in a drive-in, or a, a new release that had not succeeded, so a movie that was on its outs, or an intentional revival, a second run. And I believe The Jungle Book and A Shot in the Dark might have been that kind of combo. But truly, for me, when I was old enough to know that I was watching a movie about um, Inspector Clouseau, was, 19, was 1975's The Return of the Pink Panther. And by that time, the Pink Panther cartoon character had you know, come up with his own show. And the Inspector cartoon character had actually become its own cartoon as well, I believe. So I went to The Return of the Pink Panther sort of secretly thinking I was going to see a cartoon. And it was really it took me quite a while to get used to the fact that this film wasn't really going to be a cartoon. It was going to be live-action comedy with all adult characters. It wasn't aimed at me as a kid in elementary school or junior high school. It was aimed higher than that. And yet, it was still pretty easy to follow. Because even as a kid, I was smarter than Clouseau. But uh, the, the, the number one reason that I, I laugh so much and I love the character so much is because my father loved him. When I saw how much that character made my father laugh... It really left a big impression on me. Now, it wasn't just that I wasn't used to seeing my father laugh. My father, you know, he wasn't uh, stoic. He did laugh. Uh, he, would, he would joke from time to time. He was not beyond having fun. What I mean by seeing my father laugh is seeing my father laugh to the extent that there was an uh, open question about whether or not he was breathing as, as he should have. You know, were we going to have to call in paramedics? Were we going to have to bring in an oxygen mask? I remember when we saw the last Peter Sellers movie in theaters, still together as a family, going to almost any comedy Peter Sellers was in, even the ones that weren't that good, was uh, his Fu Manchu movie, A uh, Curious Case of Fu Manchu or The Fiendish Plot of Fu Manchu, whatever. Uh, it, was, it was the last Peter Sellers comedy probably making a joke about whether or not we should bring in an oxygen mask so that dad can survive the show because he would literally hyperventilate 
eyes watering, you know, just you know, almost having an asthma attack, you know, to, to the extent of really having a hard time between laughs gathering his breaths. And here's the message that I took from that and the message that I would like to offer on this particular show. As dads, we have a, perhaps a natural tendency to be really serious. I have a natural tendency to be what I would call so serious. And I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. One of the greatest gifts my father ever gave us was his laughter. Because despite the fact that he had an authoritarian approach, despite the fact he felt that he had the right answer to certain questions, and even when he didn't make sense, he made sense in a way that was was really clear and uh, in some ways dogmatic, but I don't mean dogmatic in a bad way. Um, he was actually anti-dogmatic or opposed to dogmatism. And on more than one occasion, me being kind of a serious kid, he would actually look to me and very sternly say, there are absolutely no absolutes. Stop making every decision you're making in all black or all white. There's a lot of shades of gray. You need to understand them. You need to be able to use them. There are absolutely no absolutes. And most of the time, he didn't have much humor about me telling him that that statement was in and of itself, in fact, an absolute. But in the Pink Panther films, and in that context, I got a different dad. I got a dad who was willing to have fun, was very able to have fun, surrendered completely to the fun, and wanted the rest of his family to join in. So it was very, very important. So one of the greatest gifts my father ever gave me was his laughter. And the character that brought that laughter out of my father more than any other character was today's different drummer, Inspector Clouseau. One of the shortcuts that Christianity tries to take with people is to describe the relationship between um, creator and creation, to describe God as being God the Father. And on many occasions, it's been called to my attention that that just doesn't work in a society where the relationship between fathers and children has broken down completely. If our understanding of father is somebody who is irrational, untrustworthy, violent, uh, prone to the abuse of substances, prone to betray people and, and to break his vows and to run around on the side. And, you know, there are so many negative qualities that we get to. And at some point, I'm going to deal head on with some of the uh, positives and negatives about our views of masculinity. But it, you can't really persuade people about what a positive relationship one can have with God if their relationship with their own parents provides no map for that, if you actually end up having to work against that. So, um, you know, my hope for the world today is that the concepts that I've talked about for fathers, whether you approach it religiously or whether you approach it simply from a sociological perspective, will click. And that if we create a world with better parents, if we create a world with better fathers, we will be in much better shape to turn to the rest of society and say, here's the way, follow me. If you'd like to put some dialogue into the inappropriate conversations we've been having, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening. Thank you.
Hello, I'm Greg, host of a podcast called Inappropriate Conversations. The show is breaking down barriers about discussing politics, sex, and religion. Society says we should keep them separated. I say come out and play. You'll find Inappropriate Conversations on iTunes in the politics section or at inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. Thanks for listening. Music by Kevin McLeod.